0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Tova Lea Nachmani on Parashat Ve'et Hanan. Be sure to catch the latest episodes of Pardes from Jerusalem by visiting us on Spotify or at elmad.pardes.org. And now, here is Tova Lea. I watched a 30-second video of the Israeli search and rescue delegation send-off as they finished their assignment in Miami last week. Ten IDF soldiers walking humbly but proudly, displaying an Israeli flag, as they walked between two rows of American rescue teams who were applauding the Israeli delegation all the way. What an image. If you haven't seen it, check it out on the source sheet for this podcast. The head of the Israeli rescue unit, Colonel Golan Vach, described in his first interview back in Israel the extremely difficult and stormy weather conditions, the exceptional physical effort it took to clear away tons of cement and metal, piece by piece, and the excruciating emotional setting there at the site of the building collapse. This video is just another example that we are living in an era that is the fulfillment of unimaginable dreams and visions that have been preserved by our people for thousands of years. This past Sunday was the national morning and fast day of Tisha B'Av. Looking back, our prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, who warned the Jewish people way in advance of the possible destruction of Jerusalem, they also promised that we as a people would return from the dispersion in full strength to Jerusalem, person by person, family by family, and that God would stay committed to the covenant with our ancestors. Looking ahead, I wonder if those prophets ever tried to imagine the fulfillment of their words. I wonder if they could have visualized a search and rescue delegation with olive green IDF military uniforms being applauded by the top professional rescue teams of the number one ranked superpower in the world. The Israeli delegation, in their humility, was actually embarrassed by the American outpouring. In a Facebook post, attached to the video, one of them wrote, this is not what we expected, and this is not what we came for. We only came to give. In the background of that short video, amid the sound of continual clapping, a few strong voices of people in the Miami Jewish community were singing in Hebrew, I believe with complete trust in the coming of the Messianic times, and even if it is delayed, I will wait, Anima Amin. I trust. The fact that there were Jews who reportedly sang this same song, even in the same melody, in the Nazi death camps only a few generations ago, makes that footage in Miami even more profound. Never mind Jeremiah and Isaiah. Who could who could have imagined even a few decades ago, when the state of Israel was struggling for its very survival, who could have imagined that we would be watching? images like this, and living in an era like this. The day after returning from Miami, Colonel Vach said three things that were very intense. The first is that the Israeli forces were even called up to the United States, who, as he said in principle, doesn't ask for foreign aid. In only a few hours from the telephone call from the United States, the Israeli delegation packed up and left their families for an unknown length of time, as they do for every large-scale emergency. The second is that with their unique engineering experience, the Israeli delegation proposed a plan which would enable rescuers to know how and where in the massive mess of concrete to locate and recover those who did not survive, but to do it in record time. The American experts estimated that it would take six weeks to complete the evacuation job, but the Israeli strategy enabled them all, shoulder to shoulder, to recover the 93 missing people in only two weeks. What an unbelievable relief for the families, the friends, and community members who were waiting with anguish in utter helplessness and uncertainty. Last but not least was the description of the Israeli team's sensitivity. Colonel Vach shared that his team members agreed that they would not call the people who they pulled from the rubble bodies. They would call them nishamot, souls. And now let's connect this to our Torah portion. In our Torah portion of Va'etchanan, Moshe knows that he's about to die. What does he want before he dies? What is his most burning desire? All Moshe wants is to see the land. He is pleading with God, Va'etchanan, to enter the land just, just to see it. And he says, I beg you, let me go over and see the good land that is beyond the Jordan River, that good mountain and Lebanon. Moshe asked for three things. He says Ebrana Tova, a good land, the good land, beever Everden across the Jordan River. the second thing he asked for is to see the good mountain and Halebanon. Lebanon. It's not the country of Lebanon. We'll see in a minute what that is. Moshe already knows that the land is good. The first time Moshe hears about the land at the burning bush, God describes the land to Moshe as Eretz Tova Ur a good and spacious land. We say this in Berkat Hamazon. But Moshe asks for more. He asks to see the good land, the good mountain, and the Lebanon. Lebanon. So Rashi asks, what is the good mountain? What is a good mountain? Are there bad mountains? Let's clarify for a moment the word good. Tov. If I saw the word good on my child's report card or on a review of this podcast, I wouldn't get overly excited. Good is not excellent, and it's not very good. In the world of grades, good equals a C, which means average, mediocre. But in the Torah, beginning with the creation story, good means something else. God witnessed all that God created and saw that it was tov, complete, exactly according to plan. Good, therefore, means, in the Toa, that it works harmoniously, that it holds together, for example, the solar system, the evaporation and circulation of water, the food chains of the plants and the animals, all of the creations are labeled as tov. Except, for humans, of course. Why are humans not called, described as Tov? Because we are harmoniously challenged. Harmoniously challenged means we sometimes make bad choices. So what does Moshe want to see? What is the good mountain? We understand he wants to see the Eretz atova. but what is the good mountain? Hahar HaTov, Hazei. Rashi says Moshe wants to see Jerusalem. Really? Wait a minute. Jerusalem at that time was a hilly, dry village ruled by the Jebusites, a Canaanite tribe with no rivers or lakes or other rich natural resources in the vicinity. It was definitely not yet turned into a sacred city and the Temple Mount, which was an elevated mountain that the Jebusite king used as a threshing floor for grains, was purchased by King David from the Jebusite king nearly 300 years after Moshe dies. Was around a thousand B.C.E., so how does Rashi get away with saying that Moshe was begging to see Jerusalem, and Lebanon, which Rashi says is a cue for the temple on the Temple Mount? I want to suggest that it is because Jerusalem is not only a place; it is also a symbol. It is a symbol for the beating heart of the Jewish people, but it doesn't belong to the Jewish people. It doesn't belong to any one tribe. It doesn't belong to anyone. And that, my friends, is what makes it holy. It says in Masechet Yoma in the Talmud, When the land of Israel was divided among the 12 tribes during the conquest of Joshua, Jerusalem, actually the place of the temple, was not given in the appointed land portion of one tribe or another. The southern part of the Temple Mount, or the area of the Temple, is within the border of the tribe of Yehudah, and the northern part is within the borders of the tribe of Benjamin, lest either of them claim possession, saying, it belongs to me, or even to us. What makes Jerusalem important? Why does Jerusalem matter? So just as a heart has four chambers, the Temple Mount housed four centers— Number one, the judicial center, the seat of the Sanhedrin, which was the Supreme Court of Justice. Two, the spiritual center, the temple itself, the place of bringing offerings of gratitude and atonement, the place of nurturing an individual Jews and the communal Jewish relationship with God and also the universal relationship with God, as we saw in Sukkot. Number three, the social and communal center, place where Jews came to hear words of Torah to meet and celebrate with and support other Jews. And number four, financial center, the place where the donations of half a shekel, which represented each and every Jewish person, were collected for the upkeep of the temple. We pray every day, numerous times a day, for the rebuilding of the temple. Rav Cook wrote, regarding our ultimate purpose as a nation, the main importance of the temple was not the building itself, and not even the way it influenced Amisael, the Jewish people. If we get too nationalistic about the Temple Mount, we're missing the point. Rav Cook said that the main importance of the Temple was the effect that it had on the nations of the world. In 1 Kings, chapter eight, King Solomon, who built the first Temple, gathers the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the ancestral leaders of the Israelites. He gathers them in Jerusalem. He's about to dedicate the exquisite building that he built by bringing up the ark of the covenant of god with the tablets of the commandments from sinai from the city of david which is zion at the dedication ceremony king solomon offers a beautiful prayer that god will hear and respond to every person's prayers and pleadings that god will forgive easily and answer people's prayers so that the jewish people will be able to feel the presence of God and live in the awe of God all of their days. Something that's much more challenging in our times when we don't have an immediate sense of when or how God answers our prayers. But King Solomon continues in chapter 8, verse 41, and I recommend that you read this yourself. It's really very beautiful. And he says, to the non-Jews who are not of your nation, Israel, he's praying to God, And who come from a distant land to worship you, says King Solomon. I pray that they will hear of your great reputation and your power and your outstretched arm. And that they will come and also pray in this house. And that you will fulfill every request the non-Jew asks of you. In order that all the regular folks will recognize your reputation. And come to live in awe and fear of you. Like your nation Israel. And that everyone will know that this building, this temple, this structure, which I, Solomon, have built, is not for my sake, not for my glory, but for the sake of your name, your reputation, not mine. Jerusalem is not only a place people love to visit. Jerusalem is also a symbol of all that we stand for. Jerusalem is the place where we come to say, I only came here to give. Looking ahead... Jerusalem is a vision. In the prophetic words of Isaiah, the mountain of the Lord's house, that's the Temple Mount, will stand high above the other mountains and it will tower over the hills and all the nations of the world will gaze upon it or flock to it with joy. Isaiah wrote, when we live the values of the Torah, then Torah will come forth from Zion, from Jerusalem. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We know this in Hebrew. Better than we do in English, probably. Ki mitzion Torah u'dvar Adonai But The end of Isaiah's prophecy is even more, it's not the end, but this next section is even more familiar to most people. And Isaiah says, then many of the other nations, meaning when we as Jews are doing what we are supposed to be doing, we'll go. other nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may instruct us in his ways and that we may walk in his paths. And at that time, God will judge among the nations. And the nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. el Nation will not take up weapons against nation. And they will not need to study the art of war. There's a Breitah in the Talmud in Masachet Megillah that says, maskirim You don't rent out your houses in Yerushalayim. Why not? Think about the pilgrimage festivals three times a year. Thousands of people flock to Jerusalem. It's high season. You can make so much money. And there's even an opinion that says you don't rent out even beds. Why? Because in an ideal world, Ideally, ideally, Jerusalem doesn't belong to anyone. Not just the temple, but Jerusalem itself doesn't belong to anyone. What makes Jerusalem holy is that it belongs to everyone. Or maybe it belongs to no one, because it belongs to God. But it's there for everyone. It's there for everyone to feel welcome. The Talmud says Jerusalem was named by God. The name Jerusalem has two parts, Yirah, which means to see, or Yeru, which means city, and shalem, Yeru shalem, which means peace. So what's the peace of Jerusalem? The peace of Jerusalem is not the absence of machloket, the absence of disagreement. Jerusalem has rarely known anything but disagreement. The peace of Jerusalem is the peace at the center of the spokes of a wheel, where opposing forces may come together to navigate a very delicate balance and reconciliation. The point of Jerusalem is for us to learn how to work together shoulder to shoulder and to see each other as neshamot. Sadly, every culture that has staked its claim on Jerusalem after the temples were destroyed has tried to destroy the memory of the Beit HaMikdash of the temple and has tried to claim possession of the mountain itself. Once, the Temple Mount was the highest point in the city of Jerusalem, But in the year 135 CE, Roman slaves carried away the dirt of the mountain and turned it into the valley that we now look down upon from the old city. The Romans expelled Jews from Jerusalem and barred them from re-entering on pain of death. Jewish life they proclaimed has now ended. The early Christians rewrote Jerusalem's importance. No longer would Jerusalem be a call to Worship one God. The early Christians turned it into the site of the passion and death of Jesus. The Crusaders came in 1099, like the Romans. They massacred and expelled Jews and destroyed all of the synagogues. The Muslims came in the 7th century before the Crusaders and also ruled after, also expelling Jews and Christians. They systematically built mosques on every Jewish holy site, and, and they sold their followers a lie that the temple never stood and that there is no Jewish connection to the Temple Mount. In attempting to rewrite the history of Jerusalem, these cultures aspired to consign the temple with its universal vision of praying together in peace to the dustbin of history. But Jews preserved Jerusalem as a memory for 2,600 years. When we build our houses, we leave a square, unplastered, to remember Jerusalem. And at every wedding, we break a glass to remember Jerusalem. At the climax of our greatest joy under the chuppah, the wedding canopy, we say, if I forget you, O Jerusalem. And at the end of every Passover Seder and the end of every Yom Kippur service, we say next year in Yerushalayim, and rebuilt Jerusalem. Since the destruction of the temples, Jews all over the world turned and prayed toward Jerusalem, keeping Jerusalem alive in their memory. Did the Jewish people keep the memory of Jerusalem alive? Or has the memory of Jerusalem kept the Jewish people alive? Tisha B'Av is not only a day of mourning for what we lost, We don't just finish Tisha B'Av and move on with our lives. We have to bring Tisha B'Av with us. We have to bring a reminder of what to expect from ourselves and how much we have to gain by being connected to Yerushalayim and everything that it stands for. In summary, in our Torah portion, Moshe begins by pleading to God to see the land, to see Jerusalem, to see the good mountain and the Lebanon, the temple. What I hear in Rashi's words is that Moshe wants to see his people fulfill their mission for the benefit of all peoples, the universal international benefit of all peoples. Every CEO wants to see the day when their business team fulfills their mission, when they fulfill their potential. A coach's dream is to see the fulfillment of what we were chosen to be. That is how Rashi is reading Moshe's request. It's not that Moshe is demanding equality by getting to enter the land nor is he requesting special privileges. He's not asking for his own benefit to enter the land. It's not about what Moshe gets to do. Moshe is the CEO, the coach, the cheerleader, all wrapped up into one. He knew that we would be challenged to keep up with the high standards set in the Torah. He knew that we would make some bad decisions along the way, that we would be harmoniously challenged and falter and sometimes corrupt our ways and find ourselves exiled from the land. But he also knew that his people have the potential to fulfill their calling. And he wanted to be able to see that. In the continuation of our Torah portion in chapters 4 to 6, Moshe recalls the overwhelming and terrifying experiences at Sinai. He recommunicates to the people the Ten Commandments. And he spends the rest of the Torah portion pleading not to God, but pleading to his people, pleading to us, that we not forget the experience at Sinai. Since we have not witnessed the revelation with our own eyes, Moshe warns us of the consequences of pushing aside the values of the Torah, the study of the Torah. Moshe is concerned that we will be skeptical, that we will forget. As Moshe knows, it is human nature to be skeptical and to be forgetful, to become wrapped up in our shopping lists and our favorite shows and in posting photos of ourselves in our favorite restaurant. Moshe is pleading for us to remember that we were chosen for a very unique purpose. One of the fulfillments of that purpose is to bring relief and comfort and hope in places and moments of disaster, as individuals and as a nation, to be the ones that people look to for guidance, hadracha, for hope, tikvah, and for comfort, nechama. In his insightful book about Deuteronomy, Moshe's last speech, educator and prominent Israeli thinker Dr. Micha Goodman cleverly teaches that Moshe knew that his body would not enter the land. Once that was a closed door, what did Moshe do? He made sure that his words, his neshama, his soul, the essence of everything he knew and believed, would enter the land with the new generation. How so? Moshe made sure his words would be written in stone, And also taught orally, and he he admonishes the Jewish people, teach them, study them, live them, teach them to your children and your grandchildren, because that is our precious legacy. And before he dies, he begs his people, the young generation who didn't experience leaving Egypt, but who heard from their parents and grandparents about the breathtaking, terrifying, and awe-inspiring moments they experienced at Sinai. Moshe begs us, his people, to remember And he begs us not to forget what we as a people are here to accomplish. He begs us to teach our children and our grandchildren by example. The memory of Jerusalem has challenged the Jewish people to stay focused and to stay on course for 3,000 years. Our mission is to be able to view others, Jews and non-Jews, in whatever state they are in, as nishamot, as souls. And our ego needs some exercising, needs some prompting, When we remember Jerusalem, we are saying, I only came here to give. That is the symbol of Jerusalem. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to tune in next week as Rav Mike Foyer discusses Parashat Ekev. Thanks for listening!